It's a, uh, it's a pleasure for me to be back home at uh, St. Mary's to share a podium with uh, Robert Riley, our, our next uh, speaker, who, from whom I've learned some valuable lessons about the sources of the American founding, and also with, with Father J. Scott Newman, uh, from whom I've learned even more valuable lessons about the sources of my own soul. Uh, and I appreciate the opportunity to address two questions that should be of concern to every American and especially Catholic Americans. Was America founded? These are, the, these are the, the official questions of the conference. Was America founded on the false principles of the Enlightenment? Or did the founding fathers build better than they knew? Are our maladies the fruits of a poison tree or the perversion of sound principles deeply rooted in the Catholic tradition? And I read these two questions and I thought, good heavens. The, uh, Father Newman must have written those questions <laughs> the, because they're, 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 they're very dense. Right? There's a lot packed into these two little sentences. So I'm going to limit my own remarks to certain parts of these rich questions. First, what are our maladies, such as the, the maladies that are referred to in, in, in Father Newman's questions? What do they have to do with the principles of the Enlightenment? And what can we learn from the example of our founders in facing up to our situation in the present? So, to characterize our maladies, I want to begin by describing a moral and philosophic problem I see among my students, a problem that my wife and I have written about, the problem of restlessness. I will then go back to consider the thought of one of the most foundational thinkers of the whole modern era, the great French essayist Michel de Montaigne. With his help, <clears throat> I'm going to try to understand the habit of mind and way of life characteristic of the Enlightenment, that other part of the question that, that Father Newman started us off with, and why that way of life and way of thinking ever made sense to human beings in the first place. Then, with the help of another Frenchman, Alexis de Tocqueville, I want to describe how Montaigne's characteristically modern way of thinking and living plays out in modern America and produces some of those maladies that we're all worried about. I'll be doing all of this to answer the question that I think would be on the founders' minds, were they with us? What time is it? That is the question, I think, characteristic of statesmen like them. Statesmen are less concerned with eternal verities than with devising plausible strategies to better achieve the common good for the people right in front of them, that is, people living right now. So having sketched the maladies of our time and their origins, I'll sketch the outlines of a path to renewal, which, because I think our troubles are primarily cultural, I take to be educational and evangelical. So let me talk a bit about students, a bit about Montaigne, a bit about Tocqueville, and a bit about where we should go from here. So where are we at this moment in history? What is the state of our souls? I want to address this question by considering something I see happening in the souls of my best students out at Furman. And, and those students are lucky, capable people, successfully living out the script that their country lays out for them. And they're therefore indicative of the results of that script. In other words, you know, when you look at people who are doing really well, who are achieving everything they're told to achieve, you see like what the recipe for achievement we have in front of us actually produces. So the book my wife and I recently published begins with a story about a student like this. 
She's done everything that Furman has asked of her, only better. She's got a couple of majors. She's been on two study abroad trips. She's the president of one club. She's the treasurer of another. And yet, as graduation approaches, she seems directionless, inwardly frantic and outwardly paralyzed, like a frightened animal that does not know which way to jump. The student is restless, almost panicked, and profoundly unhappy. She's not an isolated case. Indeed, we've observed this phenomenon so many times that we've come to expect it, particularly of outstanding students, typically during the fall of their senior year. So why, we asked ourselves, are people who are both lucky and deserving, who have successfully put together varied and interesting college lives, so anxious and discontent as their educations culminate? Why are people who are externally enviable, inwardly desperate? The frequency with which we encounter this problem caused us to think that it's not just a problem of particular students, something, but rather something systemic began to suspect that this, uh, the standards that we set as an institution are not helpful, that we're encountering an institutional failure in our basic educational mission in guiding young people to live good lives. Our summer teaching, in which we work with students from around the country, showed us that this is not just a firm problem. It is endemic among students from small colleges and great universities alike, and it only seems to get worse as you go up the ladder of prestige. Observing, reading, and reflecting showed us that it's not just a college problem, although it is particularly apparent in this transitional period of life. The problem of restlessness is a problem that my wife and I see in ourselves sometimes. It's a problem, we think, endemic to American culture. Indeed, Alexis de Tocqueville described what we're seeing already in the 1830s. On his famous visit to America, he described those who were most enjoying the fruits of American freedom and opportunity as restless in the midst of their prosperity. That restlessness is among the deepest sources of our present political discontents. But such restlessness is not even just an American problem. Tocqueville saw it so acutely precisely because he was part of a French tradition of thinking about restlessness. The tradition of the so-called moralist, which is a, a French term that means observers of men, students of the, of the hidden workings of the human soul. And that, that tradition stretches back to the 16th century. And the first speaker that I'm going to talk about um, is Michel de Montaigne. So the restlessness that my wife and I are interested in uh, in the book that we've written is a problem coextensive with modern life. The moralist knew that restlessness is in some ways native to human life and not just modern life. So St. Augustine famously says, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So this is not simply a modern phenomenon. But modern restlessness has a particular character, epitomized by the anxiety and love of distraction so many of us know all too well. Why do modern people become re restless in precisely this anxious, distracted way? We argue that modern restlessness is an unintended side effect of a way of living designed to remedy the psychopolitical problems of the era of conflict in which the modern world was born. So as Father Newman said this morning, the problems of pre-modern European life culminated in the wars of religion in the 16th century. And the specter of the cruelty and fanaticism of that age has haunted the modern imagination since. 
Much of modern political thought speaks to that problem, as one can see in perusing the pages of political thinkers from Thomas Hobbes and John Locke to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Immanuel Kant. Uh, the vast majority of, of modern philosophers are worried about the problem of fanaticism, because that's, that's where they began from. So uh, we focused in this book on a writer who's less well-known to, American, uh, well to Americans, but foundational to the modern imagination and was read and internalized by many of the thinkers most influential on the founders and some of the founders themselves. This writer was treasured by Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes, the forefathers of modern science. He was assiduously studied by um, the great trio of social contract theorists, uh, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Poets and writers such as William Shakespeare and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Virginia Woolf all borrowed from him and celebrated his name is Michel de Montaigne, and he's the 16th century inventor of the literary form known as the essay. So there were no essays the, um, prior to Montaigne's use of that word, which has another meaning in French, to, to refer to a piece of writing. Um, he wrote uh, three semi-autobiographical volumes of essays, which became some of the most widely read books in Europe during the crucial period of the 17th and 18th century. Some people think they were the most widely read books in Europe during Indeed, Montaigne was read by almost all educated people in that era. And he articulated a new way of thinking about ourselves that would give rise to a new way of thinking about everything else, from science to religion to politics. So Montaigne is the emblematic figure of the Renaissance in France. He lived through 30 years of religious war and had friends and family in every camp during France's nasty and confusing three-way quarrels. The war touched him directly. A war party once invaded the courtyard of his chateau. At another time, he was taken hostage, robbed, and nearly executed while out riding along the highway. And through it all, Montaigne kept his signature cool. Indeed, keeping one's cool is Montaigne's most important moral and intellectual quality. He calls it nonchalance, taking nothing too seriously. For some of the older members of the audience, think about the Fonz. <laughs> no, you get an idea. Um, so Montaigne celebrates this nonchalance in a famous meditation on his own mortality. He says, I want death to find me planting my cabbages, but nonchalant about it, and still more about my unfinished garden. It's a great line. I want death to find me planting my cabbages, but nonchalant about it, still more about my unfinished garden. Now, look, I'm a Catholic. I don't think that's the way you should think about death. The, uh, nonetheless, it's good writing. The, uh, and, and, and that's important. So Montaigne creates an entire way of living and thinking that reflects that kind of nonchalance. So in Montaigne's time, human beings were burning one another alive over arguments about the meaning of pronouns endowed with religious significance. In this case, it was the syllable hoc, as in the phrase, hoc est enum corpus mea, and this is my body which the priests pronounce every time we, when he, he elevates the host at the, um, uh, during mass. So these, these wars over pronouns, you know, more things change, more they stay the same. <laughs> the, uh, so in their age, the problem was fanatical passion for the transcendent, for God and the good. And a dose of Montaigne nonchalance looked like just what his contemporaries needed to help them deal with this problem. So Montaigne has a, has a two-pronged approach to checking fanaticism and advancing 
nonchalance. First, he makes an enormously powerful case for skepticism, for doubt about our own convictions, for the inability of the human mind to reach answers about God, the world, and how we should live. For centuries before Montaigne, philosophers had been arguing about the highest good, the summum bonum, and had come up with at least 288 different answers to the question of just what the human bonum is. So Montaigne catalogs this enormous variety of opinions about how we should live, along with the often comical mores of the philosophers who advance them, from Thales the astronomer who falls into a well while he's out stargazing, to Diogenes the cynic who famously made his home in a barrel. And Montaigne, Montaigne's point in, in, in describing all this is that these philosophers who take themselves so seriously don't really deserve to be taken seriously by the rest of us. And his satire of philosophers is intended to apply at least as forcefully to theologians. So that's the first thing. He makes his case for doubt, and particularly doubt about the question of the human good, the sense that we can't know that the answer to that question rationally. So second, Montaigne offers a beguiling description of a life lived without transcendent concerns, a life dedicated to what my wife and I call in this book imminent contentment. He assures us that we can safely give up on the question of the summum bonum and live a life of humble yet satisfying existential indifference. Montaigne makes this convincing by painting a portrait of himself living just that kind of life, a life that is at once self-centered and attractive. So Montaigne's particular way of pursuing happiness is to circumscribe his desires, as he puts it, to within the circle of the nearest and most contiguous good things. So he enjoys his pursuits and his pleasures, but he doesn't see any of the things that he enjoys as a gateway to the transcendent. So taking nothing too seriously means that he doesn't expect anything to save him or perfect his life. So he reads, but without the ambitions of the scholar. He travels, but without the pride of the explorer or the hope of the pilgrim. He grows his own vegetables, but is perfectly content to leave his garden imperfect. He does some stints in politics, but prides himself in not being too wedded to it. He has love affairs and eventually a family, but he doesn't expect too much from either. This, is an, this, this last thing is an important point. This coolness with respect to our political engagements, with respect to love, with respect to marriage, is an early expression of the kind of individualistic view that will shape human attitudes toward the human community over the course of the modern centuries and get stronger throughout the modern age. So Montaigne's formula for the good life is moderation through variation. So he echoes the ancient adage, nothing too much, which is a counsel of moderation, but he softens it with a modern corollary, nothing too little. So he presents us with a life he calls centrally intellectual and intellectually sensual. That is a life without the partiality that characterizes so many of the ways of life celebrated by the classical and Christian tradition and the inherent. That partiality is captured in the gospel's challenge to us to seek the pearl of great price, the one thing needful that can perfect and sanctify our lives. Montaigne thinks that we have no hope of finding any such pearl and that we can get along well enough without it. Montaigne's book has retained its influence in part because it seems to open the door to the diversity the individualism and the toleration so many people in the modern world prize. 
But even more importantly, it spells out the consequences of the skepticism the modern mind feels compelled to adopt in theory for how we live in practice. So the formula is as follows. If we cannot know the highest good, then it makes sense to sample a little from all the goods modern life makes available to us, more available to us really than any other people in history, from professional accomplishments to pleasures of the palate. Moderation through variation is a powerful formula for the modern way of pursuing happiness. So that's the Montaigne part of this. And let me just make one small comment about it. I think it's very important for Catholics in particular to understand why this kind of enlightenment approach to the world was attractive to people. It begins in this era of religious war and it issues in a life that looks charming. You want to understand the charm of that kind of life to people who don't share your beliefs. It's useful to read thinkers like Montaigne and see just, just why people are attracted to this. Okay, so now most Americans have never read or even heard of Montaigne. Uh, and the case that I want to make for his relevance here is less a story of literary genealogy, although one could lay out such a case, than of historical memory and logical deduction. Sectarian conflict and wars of religion haunt the modern mind. We all know this happened. We know that the foundation of our country had something to do with those conflicts, and we don't want to go back. Arguing about the good life, as the old philosophers that Montaigne rejected did, that seems like a path to violence, and we want to stay off that path. So Montaigne thinks through the consequences of this instinctive move of the modern mind with great clarity and shows us what it means for how we live. And that logic holds whether you've ever read him or not. To remind you of it one last time, if we don't ask the question of the highest good, the obvious way to proceed is to hedge our bets, to try a little of everything. We attempt to dabble our way to happiness. Okay, so part two. Now turn to Alexis de Tocqueville, who sees some of this logic playing out in, in, in our own country. So Tocqueville follows directly in, an, in the intellectual tradition that Montaigne created. He read Montaigne and all the writers who come between him and Montaigne in this, in this tradition, in this tradition of the moralist. But in addition to having this great French formation, mental formation, he, he's a great observer of America. He made a famous visit to the United States in 1830. He might have passed through here, by the way. He, he knew Joel Poinsett for whom Poinsett Highway and the Poinsett Hotel are named. It's always been an interesting fact to somebody who directs the Tocqueville program. The, um, so what he, one of the things that he noticed in America was that the pursuit of happiness, as Americans experience it, partakes of Montaignan skepticism, but not of Montaignan nonchalance. We don't have that, that, that coolness that he prescribed. American life, was an anxious affair, haunted by a scramble for status, materialism, and individualism, all of it rooted in existential cluelessness. <laughs> I, think, I think those things, it's a technical term, the, uh, I think those things are the deepest sources of our present discontents. So Americans have been anxious for a very long time. Why? Tocqueville begins his exploration of the American mind and heart, volume two of, of Democracy in America, uh, with a meditation 
on the ubiquitous present in uh, presence in America of doubt. Remember, doubt and skepticism are, 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 um, have, have, have the same meaning. So from the moment that, that Tocqueville arrived in this country, he detected what he called a great store of doubt in the recesses of everyone's thoughts. He said, doubt is the sentiment I think I see visibly ruling in the depths of everyone's soul. There are several reasons for this. One is the historical memory of religious conflict I referred to a minute, minute ago. Um, the fear of fanaticism leaves us aware that we shouldn't be too sure of ourselves. Second is our commitment to equality. Who am I to say, if I'm an egalitarian, who am I to say that I have thought the question of how to live through better than anybody else? Such doubt leads us to discount the very possibility of moral philosophy. We don't believe, we Americans typically do not believe it is possible to use our reason to think through the question of how to live. Anybody who's ever taught college students knows this. They, they show up and you say, we're gonna talk about the good life. And they say, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> like, we're gonna argue about this? We can't, we can't do that. Um, that leaves us directionless. Our, our unwillingness to reason about these things leaves us directionless in the way that I've described in my, in my, my account of that, that student. It also creates a kind of vacuum in the soul, an existential emptiness and craving. So what fills that vacuum? Among the first passions of Americans is a ubiquitous status anxiety. Tocqueville notes the great good of, uh, the great American good of the equality of conditions. So, what he means by this phrase, the equality of conditions, is what we call social mobility. Americans are not bound to pass from generation to generation the, um, the, the, the social status that they get the, um, at, their, at their birth. We move up and down the social ladder. And Tocqueville notes that this was, he notes that this is true in the America that he observed in the 1830s. Uh, he thought it was true for a larger number of people here than had ever been the case before in history in spite of the fact that he's very aware of things like slavery, which are obviously a, a, um, uh, a contradiction of this American principle of justice. He sees that, but he says it's still the case that there are more people able to move up and down the social ladder in America than have ever existed any place before. And that's because Tocqueville knows something about what it has been like to live in other times and places, which is something that um, Americans often forget. So, Americans then and now believe in the equality of conditions and we think that it constitutes justice. So when we debate about things like social mobility, we worry that it's declining, we all assume that social mobility is a good thing. And Tocqueville notes that that is an unusual assumption. This is not something that everybody in every time and place has believed. So, to, so we all believe in the equality of conditions as a political matter. But this doesn't mean that we actually enjoy the lived experience of it. In other words, so, you know, we're all mobile. And because we're mobile, we can advance our status. And advancing your status is fun. But the possibility of rising is intrinsically connected to the possibility of falling. And in a world in which lots of people are trying to scramble upwards, even sitting still feels like falling. So 
status, because status, after all, is a relative game. So if, 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 if one of my students is moving ahead faster than the other, that student, the, the, the one who's not moving ahead so fast, feels himself declining because he is, in fact, declining relatively. So the inner experience of the equality of conditions is therefore a kind of constant anxiety about our place in life and our failure to reflect rationally about how we should live because we're skeptics heightens our need to take our own measure by constantly comparing ourselves to others around us. So if I don't think I can rationally think through the question of how I should live, how do I figure it out? You know, what I'm going to do with my life? Well, I look at what you're doing the, um, and try to take my bearings off of there. So I'm constantly comparing myself to other people. So that's the first passion that fills this, this existential vacuum, status anxiety. Um, the second passion that fills the existential vacuum left by moral skepticism is materialism. In a world in which our existential choices feel ungrounded and our status is always insecure, property offers a kind of immediate comfort. So, you know, I can get my mind off of questions that I can't answer about God or the good life by just getting a, satisfying myself for a moment with a fancy cup of coffee or contemplating the varieties of granite in a, in a, in a, in a, in a catalog while I'm doing a kitchen renovation. I, I, I fixate my mind on these little tangible things instead of thinking about big questions to which I don't have any answer. The, um, ours is, Tocqueville notes, ours is not the opulent materialism of the, of the aristocratic world. It's not like the fountains at Versailles, which are like, you know, sort of wonders of the world. It's, 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 a, it's a small bore materialism. It's the kind of materialism of, of a thousand little fascinations that sort of, as, as Tocqueville says, it's, it, it's not a big thing. It's a, it's a bunch of small things that kind of come to stand between the soul and God. It's a very striking reflection. So once we set our eyes on these kinds of materialistic goals, Tocqueville notes, the clock starts ticking. He says, we cling to the goods of this world as if we are assured of not dying. And yet at the same time, we go scrambling after the next thing, hoping to fit it all in before we get old and boring. And that distracted attention to material goods can eventually lead us to believe that matter is all that is, that our own souls are in fact an illusion. So status anxiety, materialism, the third force, Tocqueville sees shaping life in modern American democracy is what he calls individualism. Montaigne's skepticism undermines, as I talked about a minute ago, many of our social ties. Montaigne doesn't put too much stock in politics, trust too much in love or hope too much from his family. And in the 1830s, Tocqueville was already worried about the way in which individualism undermines citizenship. So what he, what he pointed out is that people who don't have, who, who have too little time, who are constantly worried about status and the material conditions of life, tend to trim their sails and to focus on the uh, nearest concerns of themselves and, and their own families. One way, to, one way to put it, so he was worried that people were, were, were too much at home and too little in the public square. And he's, one way to think about this is that you know, the soccer carpool always trumps the town meeting because like, look, I gotta deal with my own kids. The, uh, somebody else can go to the town meeting. That's, that's Tocquevillian individualism. Now in our time, this tendency has crept inside the family itself. Tocqueville didn't, that wasn't going on in the 1830s. Individualism, the disdain of custom, 
social and geographic mobility and um, existential cluelessness all make it harder to form families. For many, the retreat from others becomes a retreat into literal solitude with online connections providing a virtual simulacrum of, of social life. So Father Newman referred earlier to some of the disorders of the, of the, of the, of the sexual revolution. You know, among those things, things like falling birth rates, failure to marry, what this, what this means is that a lot of people live alone and that's uh, literally alone and that's a pretty terrifying way to live. So Tofu was deeply worried already in the 1830s about where these tendencies would lead us. In the closing chapters of Democracy in America, he describes how doubt, status anxiety, materialism, and individualism tend to render Americans into small, fragile-feeling people. And he invokes two great specters that work in tandem with these soul-shrinking tendencies. The first is the famous soft despotism of the nanny state that he was perhaps the first person to notice. He, he, he saw how we'd have a kind of large caretaker government that looks, that looks after us in a lot of small ways and thereby furthers our, our sense of helplessness. And he also was worried about the rise of the industrial economy that was going on in his time. The first big factories are being built, which is a predecessor to our commercial and digital economy. And these economies deploy human beings as they like and then abandon them to the welfare state when it has used them up. If you're interested in this phenomenon, take a look at the Facebook files recently published in the Wall Street Journal. And they talk, you get the inner dialogue of Facebook and how it thinks about its users. It's not interested in your good. Big business, big government, and individualism are not opposed to one another. This is an important Tocquevillian point because we're used to debating between these things. These things are a defining trio of modern life and they combine to make self-government less possible. So Tocqueville saw that the Americans of the 1830s had resources with which to deal with these forces. While they had discarded existential reason, many of them had faith to guide them in life if that faith was marred by fideism. And th that is, it, it's kind of irrational faith and therefore it's subject to social whims. While social status and materialism were constant concerns, at least the Americans of that age had the Sabbath. When everybody stopped, a great hush fell over the world and men and women turned to their Bibles and their families. While the forces that sapped vitality from public life and drove the retreat into private life were powerful, there were countervailing arts of association and small-scale politics that Americans were adept at using. Tocqueville loved the, 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 the town governments of New England, which people came together to govern the little world that they could take direct responsibility for, the, the world of themselves and their neighbors. And at least, even human beings who were checking out of politics, at least found refuge and meaning in the little world of the family. Now, while many things in American life have gotten better since the 1830s and, and all the ways all of us could name, on the dimensions that I've described, many of our problems have increased. Even the most fortunate among us, as I described at the outset of the talk, are so little accustomed to using reason to guide us in life that we find ourselves existentially clueless in the face of life's most important choices. Many now do not even have fideistic faith to guide them. We're all aware of the rise of the so-called nuns, Americans who do not identify with any codified religious creed or organization. 
we have more material comforts, which is great. But that also means we have more material temptations. And that means that we have more of the dissatisfaction that follows on the heels of expanded desires. The Sabbath has, in many corners, fallen into disuse. More Americans than ever are, are radically disconnected from the social fabric. They have almost no experience of real civic participation and are now without even the near connections of family, often living in solitary apartments. So people living these sorts of lives are not going to be good citizens of a liberal democratic order. Their anxieties are going to be overwhelming and they will feel unstrung in the face of their most important choices. They're going to feel little capacity for action in themselves, having little cultivated, cultivated competence or experience building a world with others. They will rage against the great forces that govern their lives, pour salt in the very wounds they complain of, and ask far too much from politics. So how do we, be, how do we begin to rebuild the kinds of citizens upon which the American political order depends for its survival. So, just to, I want to quote John Adams to understand this, this, this proposition. Father Newman is right that our government is not designed to teach virtue, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't assume a lot about the way our citizens are living. John Adams said, Ours is a constitution designed for a moral and religious people, and it can't work with any other people. That is a problem for us. So here, now I'm turning to the last part of the talk. Here's where I think the example of the founders is most helpful. Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison were not philosophers, people primarily concerned with the defense and discovery of principles. They were statesmen whose primary concern was prudence. That prudence allowed them to meet the needs of their moment successfully. We honor them best in our time by seeking to measure and meet the needs of our moment in the same way. The most essential work to be done in our time to address the maladies I've described seems to me to be educational and evangelical. Such a suggestion will sound to some people soft. Education, evangelism, is this really how we're going to solve our big problems. I don't think it's soft. We've seen a number of dramatic proofs in recent years that money and even missiles can be decisively overcome by the thoughts, opinions, loves, and hates that dwell in human souls. Concentrating on education and evangelism reflects the hard-headed willingness to play a longer, deeper game. Here, I think there are reasons for hope in education, the institutions doing the best educational work in our country right now are its growing network of classical schools. These schools now educate half a million American children. And, uh, and they're growing fast. The, um, the, 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 um, the director of the uh, Center for Classical Education down in Arizona hopes to see uh, three times as many classical schools over the course of the next 10 years. And they're looking to take advantage of the flight from public schools that has been created by the pandemic. Um, my children 
have attended a classical school here in, in, in Greenville, Veritas Preparatory Academy, and they're now doing that in Hyattsville, Maryland, the St. Jerome Academy and Institute. That's a, classic, that's a Catholic classical school. In such institutions, one sees what American education can be. So what's classical education? Why do I think it might help? Classical education begins with the recognition of an anthropological fact or a claim about human nature that human beings necessarily orient their lives around certain distinct ends, ends that are called the true, the good, and the beautiful. Now, you might be thinking, uh, I have no idea what those things are. And that's true. Nobody really knows the whole truth or grasps the entire good or fully comprehends the beautiful. But that doesn't mean that the good, the true, and the beautiful are not facts in our lives that orient our choices. We decide what to do or not to do according to the image that we have of what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. So by thinking seriously about the good, the true, and the beautiful, which are the primary principles of human motivation, students in these schools learn that their life choices are not arbitrary as my high-performing student uh, from the outset of this talk, unfortunately, did. Students in these schools learn a form of reason that does not fit on spreadsheets or game theory tables, but is, rather, a truth-seeking desire of the soul and understands the beautiful to be a sign of the good. One way in which students in such schools encounter the truth is by reading political history seriously, often in original sources. And it's only through such an education that one can get a proper appreciation of our founding. As Alexander Hamilton put it, ours is a government on the basis of reflection and choice. And one of the things that means, among other things, is that you can only appreciate it on the basis of reflection. In other words, the goodness of America's constitutional order is not a simple goodness. It's not just like obvious justice, like helping a little old lady across the street. It's a complicated thing, and you have to understand why anybody would do something so complicated. The only way to get that understanding is to know something about the political history of places like Greece and Rome where democracy immolated itself and Republican government collapsed into civil war. You have to know these things to understand why American government makes sense. But classical education, the kind of education that goes on in these schools, is not all high-minded. They include what, are, what they call practicals, in which people learn how to do things, the, uh, from swing dancing to woodworking, I'll explain the, 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 I'm happy to explain the civic significance of swing dancing. Anybody wants to talk about that in the question. The, um, some of them have revived shop class, the, uh, which has recently and correctly been described as a kind of soul craft, for it habituates the soul to discernment about the real world in front of it and the ways uh, that, that, that we can deploy to make, repair, and improve things. It thereby, and this is important, thereby develops the competence essential to the liberal citizen who must experience himself as capable of building a world with his fellow citizens. This is a point made by the um, uh, Georgetown political theorist, uh, Joshua Mitchell. Liberal democracy is meant to work for competent people. And if we don't raise competent people, they're gonna be lousy citizens of our kind of country. So this seems to me to be, this educational work seems to me to be the crucial work of our moment. You might describe it as pre-political or sub-political. That is, it's the work of recovering the rational orientation toward the, the true, the good, and the beautiful that orders the soul and allows one to become the, comp the constructive and competent citizen 
the liberal order requires. It will be work that takes generations to accomplish. The ultimate conclusion to this work is evangelization. Americans better educated in the good, the true, and the beautiful will be better prepared to receive the gospel, which is the apogee of all three. And those who have benefited from such educations have the tools of persuasion they need to share the gospel more effectively with others. A very well-informed friend of mine has remarked to me that a, that a, um, a modern-day Billy, Billy Graham would have a field day in our contemporary situation. The disorders of American life are teeming waters into which to lower the nets of the fishers of men our Lord has called us to be. To the young men present, when our deacon prays that we should be blessed with more vocations from this parish, he's talking about you. But every member of the laity, as well, needs to be engaged in the work of seeking to save souls. There is no higher calling, and it might have the useful side effect of saving our country. Thank you. Dr. Story, our first question. <clears throat> Some Catholic scholars believe that our lack of understanding of natural law is a root cause of our decline. Your thoughts? I, uh, I tend to agree. I, um, natural law is a, a very complicated subject, um, and I'm not an expert on it. My uh, favorite piece of work on it recently is the work of the French political philosopher Pierre Menon, who has developed a kind of new reading of natural law, in which he seeks to remind us, what he's trying to do is to seek to remind a diverse society like ours that just because we dif disagree on things, we shouldn't understand all of our disagreements as fundamental disagreements about the principles of the universe. A lot of the decisions that we have to make together are practical decisions that turn on evaluating the, the measure of certain goods that we want to see, the useful, um, the, useful the, uh, the pleasant, and the noble are the three things that he lays out. And so what he's trying to do there is remind us that there's a lot of room for reason to bring people together on the means we need to deploy to reach ends that we kind of already agree on. Everybody wants to have useful roads, right? I don't think there's a lot of disagreement about that. <laughs> the, um, and so, you know, this, and this is something that we actually were able to get bipartisan support for. And so if we think about natural law as the things that, rash, that, that guide our reason in seeking the common good, I think we can and should recover some of that. And I don't think natural law is a matter of faith. That's, what, that's, that's in a way the opposite of what natural law means. Natural law, the Catholic tradition has been great on this, but it's not a Catholic, it, the whole point of it is that it's not specifically Catholic. It's not specifically, it doesn't specifically belong to any religious faith. It's the kinds of goods that reason can perceive via anybody's reason. And so yes, we need to recover uh, uh, some of that. Do you agree with Patrick Deneen that classical liberalism has failed? I think it's important here to, what I agree with and don't agree with about Patrick Deneen, what I agree with, uh, 
John Locke was not a Catholic. John Locke was in many ways an anti-Catholic thinker. John Locke was deeply influenced by the skepticism of Michel de Montaigne. John Locke's philosophy of life seems to me to lead people astray. And so when Patrick Benin polemicizes against John Locke, more power to him. Now, the American founding cannot be reduced to the, princi to the, to the philosophy of John Locke. That's where I disagree with Patrick Benin, and that's where I uh, agree with something uh, more akin to what you were presenting this morning and what Robert Riley, I expect, will, will, will present to us um, this afternoon. Let me present one case to illustrate the collision of ideas we're discussing and see what, if any, conclusions can be drawn from the case. Uh, marriage is a natural human institution that pre-exists all government. It arises from human nature and the sexual friendship which produces new human life. It exists as a cultural and legal artifact in every society in some form. In the West, for all of recorded history, it has been understood as the sexual friendship of one man and one woman, with the exception of polygamy, um, which has public consequences because of the necessity of knowing whose parents' children are, uh, who's responsible for the upbringing of children, how property is inherited and transmitted. And uh, even apart from Judaism and Christianity, um, pagan cultures like Greece and Rome had norms to govern these matters. All of that in the last few years has been overturned in favor of a new understanding of marriage, which is the private sexual friendship of any two consenting persons, which is recognized in law as having public consequences. It seems inevitable, given that transformation, that the older Jewish and Christian understanding will no longer have a place in the public square. So for example, um, when a minister of religion witnesses a wedding with legal effect in the state of South Carolina, in that moment, he functions not just as a minister of religion, but as a magistrate of the state, like a judge <clears throat> receiving marriage vows. Given the trajectory of the legal reasoning that led to Obergefell, eventually a lawsuit will be brought claiming that no minister of religion should be permitted to witness a wedding of a man and a woman who would not also witness a wedding of two men or two women. So in all of this, we have a collision of natural law, of religious faith, of uh, patterns of uh, human behavior um, codified by culture and custom at war with a very modern understanding of individual preference and choice leading to God knows what. Are there any lessons on the questions we're discussing that can be drawn from this collision? Okay. <laughs> the, uh, 
my, um, a few points about this. First, genealogical. I don't think the trouble starts with the sexual revolution. First, one has to ask, why did the sexual revolution happen? Why was this fertile ground for the sexual revolution? It is, in fact, the case that our country is deeply saturated with Enlightenment philosophy, and lots of Enlightenment philosophers are deeply hostile to traditional notions of marriage. And these are mostly unmarried men, the uh, writing books for <laughs> celebrating the lives of people like themselves. And so, you know, Montaigne is, uh, don't look to Montaigne if you want marriage advice. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's messy in there. I mean, he, you know, this is a guy who questions the incest taboo. The, um, and, and, and he charmed the mind of, 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 uh, of uh, European thinkers for centuries. Uh, John Locke makes a case for divorce. The um, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is, 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 is as bad for marriage as one could be. And, and our, our founders were, were steeped in these people. There is no denying that. And so, you know, the, the sexual revolution, which is, of course, preceded by no-fault divorce and things like this, an individualistic country like ours is fertile ground for that kind of stuff. So what do we, what do we, what do we do? I think the case that Father Newman just laid out for the, 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 the naturalness of, 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 um, of marriage, the traditional marriage is correct. I think it's, um, and here I wanna de delineate, distinguish between a practical strategy from the church and a more public strategy for us as citizens. The practical strategy from this church, I'm just gonna tell you what Father Newman has said to me earlier, which is that the, the Catholic Church just ought to get out of the civil marriage business. The, um, that is, you should go get your, your official government document down the street and come over here to have your wedding sanctified. The, um, that seems to me right. The, um, that would be uh, a way for the church to avoid a great deal of trouble. With respect, but insofar as we think that marriage is not, a, is not a, an exclusively Catholic thing, right? That's obvious. Lots of, you know, lots of cultures, lots of times and places have had, have had marriage. And we want to make a case to our fellow citizens that uh, the traditional understanding of marriage is better for them, better for children, better for everything. There's, there is room to do that in the American constitutional system. The proper place to do that is not the courts. And that's the way that we've been thinking for a long time. The proper place to do it is the legislature, where, we, where the, uh, the, the competing opinions of different bodies of citizens meet and conflict and compromise, but eventually result in law. And I know everybody is depressed about the state of our legislature right now, and there's good reasons for that. The, um, but I commend to you all a recent article by a friend of mine named Yuval Levin in the magazine National Review in which he calls for uh, a conservative march through the, our legislative institutions parallel to the march through our judicial institutions that have, has happened over the course of the last 40 years. We may be on the cusp of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, that's possible which would represent an extraordinary victory of this long effort to seed the legal world with conservative-minded judicial scholars like um, Amy Coney Barrett and, um, and, and others. 
we, the same thing could be possible on the legislative side. And it's on the legislative side where things like a proper good, uh, view of marriage have to be advocated because this is something where we, we have to persuade people. We can't just say, oh, you know, this is what the law is, eat it. Last question. Montaigne represents a strand of enlightenment thought that um, begins with the concession that we can't know the highest good. Yeah. So that leads in turn to a epistemological modesty. Cartesian doubt becomes skepticism um, of grand metaphysical claims. And yet the modern left seems to have set that aside in favor of a new fanaticism enforced yes. by state power. Mm -hmm. What happened? Uh, that's a really good uh, question. I think, you know, and this is a question that we get a lot because we're describing the, um, the presence of, um, the, the presence of the deeply relativistic strain of the modern mind, which goes all the way back to the 16th century. Um, we seem to be, and you know, Alan Bloom famously wrote about this in the early 1990s. In some ways you could say, or 1989, I think it was, 87 was the publication of that book. The, um, and you could say, look, time has changed. And because in some ways it does look like times have changed, um, and that we're in the grips of a new fanaticism. Interestingly, I don't think that fanaticism is rooted in a deeply held belief that one has discovered the rational truth about the kinds of questions that we're dealing with. If you talk to an old school Marxist, those people would talk to you forever because they had a comprehensive ex system of explanation of everything. The, and they, you know, they were perfectly happy to tell you how the horse races were related to you know, the, 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 the dialectical materialism of history. The, um, they could, so they had a, a comprehensive, rational view of the world. They may have been wrong, but that's what they're trying to do. If you look at the way that contemporary activism works, and as you acknowledged this morning, we should remember our, our contemporary activist fellow citizens are trying to make the world a better place. But if you look at how it works, the goalposts shift constantly. The aims people attempt to achieve are often fantastic. The, uh, and, and that's why a lot of it just is very ineffective. The, um, so, you know, it's, it makes a lot of noise and it disturbs a lot of people, but it actually doesn't get much done toward the pursuit of its own ends. And so in this sense, I think this fanaticism is the, the obverse side of the kind of relativism that I have been talking about because it is so often just arbitrary and uh, in this sense, um, irrational. Does that come from some deep human need for certitude? Uh, I think so. I mean, you know, if you, so, I described like the best students and how confused they are. But you can go right down the social scale on a university campus. You can talk about like the party hard, uh, sorry, the study hard, party hard crowd. The, um, you know, they do really well on their accounting exams, but then on the weekend they're like hitting the jello shots. The, um, uh, it's uh, like, look there, you know, these people also, they have no idea how to use their leisure. You get a little bit lower than that, and you've got like a, a, a group of, uh, a friend of mine calls this next group the walking wounded, right? People who have been thoroughly messed up by the authorities in their lives, the, um, who also just don't have any idea how to orient themselves. 
And then you come to the social justice warriors, and I think, you know, they're living in a world full of people either who are either totally aimless or have laid out aims for themselves that just aren't all that attractive, right? Like, go be a um, consultant. Like, you know, what, what young person with an ounce of thumos would find that to be a satisfying answer to the question of the human soul? And so they find something more satisfying. They found a big group that is determined to get something done. They join up. Seems to give meaning. And so, yeah, I think it springs from that, that desire. Thank you, Dr. Story. All right. Thank you. Very much.